2: Oh, and welcome to the April edition of Signal. Well, we're still in April, I suppose, so we'll hang on to it for as long as we can. Apologies for being a couple of weeks later into the month as um, a few things have happened, you might have noticed, in pop culture uh, in recent days. I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, uh, Ruth, the Lady Jackson. Hello. That That, that title sticking. I hope you're enjoying <laughs> it. And uh, Sam, uh, what do you want as the middle option? I'm not sure
3: if I can better that. Okay, hails.
2: Uh, we'll stick with that. Um, so uh, welcome to... Both of you. Uh, As always, I'm James Poulter and welcome to uh, Signal, the podcast from the Media Net, where we go behind the scenes of faith um, and media journalism in the UK and beyond. And we have got a packed show for you this month. Uh, Coming up later on in the show, we'll be talking to Steve Clifford. I caught up with him earlier in the month, as did Sam, but on a separate piece (laughs) entirely, which you can go and read in Christianity Magazine. Um, But I spoke to Steve, uh, who is the head of the Evangelical Alliance, about unity and his new book that's recently been released on that subject. So that's coming up later on in the show. We'll also be going through the news and things that have been touching us um, in the past few weeks. um, And obviously a lot around uh, a certain amount of elections that are now going on. And we also have a new segment for you later on called Below the Fold, which is our uh, monthly uh, reflection uh, for Christians working in journalism from Hazel Southam. And we'll also be giving you all of our recommendations in the playlist at the end of the show. So lots more to come. OK, first up, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that have been going on in the news in the past few weeks. And, well, we can't really um, start off without mentioning that there's a small thing uh, happening in UK politics, uh, which is the snap election that was announced uh, on this week's Tuesday, just gone, uh, by Theresa May, uh, announcing that the polls will be open again for the Br- uh, British people to vote on the 8th of June. And this one really, I suppose, from a journalistic perspective, caught us all by surprise. Mm. I suppose none of you were tipped off just being down the road from West
3: well, yes and no. When when we heard that there was going to be a press conference, or uh, well, sorry, Theresa May was going to make a speech outside Downing Street, you don't do that unless it's fairly big news. The only other thing could have been that we declared war on North Korea. So, uh, you know, <laughs> given given the two options, I think this was the the better one, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, I suppose I suppose you could look at it that way. <laughs> but I think what is amazing about this one, I think you know, all of the commentary that's been going on in the past couple of days has said much the same thing. But this really did keep the media kind of at bay and completely off guards when this was announced. I mean, the fact that they managed. To Keep this so tight lipped mm. um, in in the cabinet and in that very small group of people does say something about mm. how well they are kind of orchestrating that kind mm. of media environment and the the reaction that 's kind of come out since has been very varied right I mean how have you guys been uh, dealing with that here
4: well I mean I think particularly as Christians, the first reason why people were quite surprised about it was because she sort of out and out said that there wouldn 't be one until two thousand twenty and I guess <coughs> you know, we'd like to think that our word means something. And there's, so there's kind of the debate around whether whether it's a good thing that you've sort of promised <laughs> something and then took it away. And, of course, there's le- legitimate reasons for doing it now. But, but I think there is that in itself kind of portrays a sense of mistrust and all of that because if people have sort of... You know, put their faith in her, and then she's breaking their trust by kind of breaking her word. That's that's an interesting element, isn't it?
2: Absolutely, and I think you know, faith and the role of faith in these kind of things now will become actually, I Mm -hmm. think, a much more laser focus Mm -hmm. in this election, unlike others. Particularly if you compare to what's kind of going on at the moment in the kind of broader spectrum. So we um, as we're recording today, um, the French um, finals are going on at the moment to select which two candidates will go forward into the presidential runoff. We also have this election going on. And of course, elections to come in the f- future weeks in Germany and potential also um, votes in Italy as well um, around uh, their versions of, of Brexit <laughs> um, or uh, Alexit, I think there was a couple of ones that have been named you know, the, all of that to, to come and I think it does, you know, faith is going to become a part of this particularly we've seen in this um, past week um the, the focus particularly put on uh, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, Tim Farron around his, the role that faith plays in the decision making that he is making in this election. Obviously he was um, called out uh, on Newsnight a couple of days ago um, in further commentary around his attitudes towards sin and particularly around the the voting um, that he's done on gay marriage. And how do you think that he's been treated in this? It seems to have kind of been a real, um, you yeah, know, very quickly to, for people to focus on that rather than yes. these kind of broader issues.
3: Well I think in particular Channel 4 and Cathy Newman, you know, this is been an ongoing thing because this isn't the first time he's been questioned on that programme by that particular TV presenter about his views on homosexuality. And Tim Farron doesn't want to talk about that. Tim Mm. Farron wants to talk about his election campaign, he wants to talk about policy and it seems to me that I think much of the media are quite comfortable with Christians labelling certain things a sin but what they're not comfortable with is you talking about homosexuality or homosexual sex or anything to do with that as sin. That's just a total no-go area, it would appear. And that's why Tim Farron was reluctant to answer the question, because he knew if he were to say anything, uh, put those words together, homosexuality and sin, anywhere near each other, even though that's been a traditional Christian perspective for, uh, what, a thousand years? um, He... He would be vilified in the media, and he would be in serious, serious trouble. It would jeopardise his whole campaign. So he's been reluctant to go there, and I completely understand why. It's
2: very interesting, though, isn't it? Because these things get levelled at him in this kind of uh, current situation, whereas they don't seem to have been directed back at the prime minister. You know, obviously mm. Theresa May is the daughter of a vicar, also mm. holds a you know kind of you could, if she was in Germany, probably a Christian Democratic viewpoint, mm. um, and you know has also a voting record that would suggest that she has also voted against in some of these kind of um, recent pieces of legislation. But the the. Media they just don't seem to have kind of gone for her on these kind of topics. I wonder why that is. I
3: think it's because um, even whether or not Tim Farron has used this word or not, he is considered an evangelical Christian and it seems to me like much of the media um, you know, they're okay with you being perhaps a more, you know, liberal or Mm. Anglican or whatever, but as soon as you use the word evangelical, it's a little bit like the word fundamentalist now. It's just seen as a bit strange a bit scary and the first question that seems to come to mind for most journalists is well, let's ask them about homosexuality and the Mm -hmm. fact that Tim Farron voted in favour of gay Marriage is completely meaningless, apparently, um, because for some reason the media want to get inside his head and and know what his theological views are. So I do feel sorry for him and I I understand why he hasn't wanted to to go there because, you know, whatever your views on sexuality from a Christian point of view, it's not exactly a simple topic and Mm. it doesn't really lend itself to sound bites. And of course, in the media world we live in, it's all about sound bites. So Tim Farron just doesn't want to go there. And um, I do think the media need to back off a bit, although I can also understand why you want to go for a juicy question. Mm -hmm. And that really is a juicy question at the moment for him.
4: I think what's really interesting, I read this in an op-ed piece, that in the States, you almost, like depending on who you are, you almost have to pretend to have a faith to, to get where you want to get in politics. And actually, it seems to be exactly the opposite in the UK, where you almost need to pretend you don't have a faith.
3: That's exactly mm. actually what really Tim Farron
4: said in oh, okay. an interview. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it's that. really interesting, yeah. though, isn't it? But it
2: is right, isn't it, that you know our journalists should be also questioning the ethics and the morality mm. that our journalists have. I don't think that it's necessarily wrong that the Channel Four presenters have been going after mm. this line of questioning. If it does, then you know kind of have some kind of indication on what they will do in terms of voting, in terms yeah. of parliament yeah. or types of acts yeah. that they bring forward. You know, they should be allowed to make these types of questions, mm. right?
3: Yes, but and that's exactly my point. Tim Farron on LGBT issues has been very much in favour of. LGBT equality all the way through as I say he voted in favour of gay marriage and so you know the fact that he may personally, theologically disagree with gay relationships on a theological level clearly doesn't affect his policy because mm-hmm. he's a liberal. He understands. Look, as I as a Christian, I may not believe in that way of raising a family. However, I'm not going to stop other people from marrying people the same gender or bringing up kids to to believe that that's okay. So, I yeah, I just think, as you say, if it affects his policy, then yes, there are genuine questions that need to be answered. But it would appear he holds a private theological point of view, which he understands is only perhaps for himself and his for his family, and he. He's very, very happy, in fact, eager to give LGBT people complete Mm. uh, equality and rights, and he will vote in that way. So I think that's why it's interesting. A lot of LGBT people have have defended him. They've said,
2: look at his voting Mm. record. It speaks for itself.
3: Because in
4: some senses, actually, that's the thing that matters. That's the thing that's going to affect us.
2: Yes, exactly. But I I think what's interesting, if you look at them last night, Nick Clegg was uh, defending him slightly on this this point around um, his... As you, the, the word Sam just used private faith. Mm. And I think that is uh, something we should probably challenge, actually, a little bit around. You know, can, if you're going to have a faith, for it to be private, personal, mm. I think is absolutely fine. Mm. But the idea that faith can also be private seems to also rub me up the wrong way slightly. Yes. And I think that that is something that many, um, you know, conservative or evangelical Christians would probably say that, yes, faith can be a. Um, a personal matter but should it ever really be private Mm. I think is a a difficult one and we should you know be allowed to kind of make that kind of scrutiny and while we kind of on the topic of this kind of ethics thing around the election one of the other things that has been the fallout of that is that we've also seen um, the ex-chancellor George Osborne um, Mm. resign um, as his role as an MP obviously in the wake of him taking on a a number of other roles um, outside of his um, job inside his constituency Um, and that again this point about ethics seems to be one that I think we're going to keep Coming back to, him, I'm mm. sure we'll come back to here on the, on the show in in next coming episodes, but yeah, what's that reaction? Do we feel that he's done the right thing here? Do, that he's kind of separated himself a little bit from his role as now editor at the Evening Standard from um, his role as an MP. Well, it's
4: interesting because when he sort of took the position, it it did feel a bit like, whoa, slight conflict of interest potentially. So I th- I think it's really honourable that he's done this. I mean, I'm sure it's not ju- that I'm sure there's other reasons behind. It. I'm sure he's going to be <coughs> busy doing all sorts of things and. Um, but it, but it seems like that's quite an honourable thing for him to do. Yeah,
3: uh, he was talking about dividing up his time on a daily mm, basis mm. and being able to be in parliament and then going to be able to publish a paper. And it was, you know, for us, for myself, anyway, who works for a magazine. It's just completely unrealistic <laughs> that you could edit uh, a na- you know a national well. You know london-based newspaper and also be a politician and also i mean it's not the there are other jobs as well he's taken on mm. um you know he's he's got jobs come out of his ears and i, I think <laughs> it's it's right that he steps back and the conflict of interest i think is a very serious matter mm. uh for sure so he's definitely done the right decision i mean you know Uh, Ruth's being very nice about it, but I would say he shouldn't have taken (coughs) an evening standard job in the first place.
2: Well, I think it's, you know, having a a foot in both camps, you know, it does allow him to kind of have the ability to make, you know, kind of well-rounded decisions, be exposed to a broader set of different people, you know, not kind of being stuck entirely inside the kind of the political bubble. And, you know, we often kind of throw the the grenade at at, um, MPs and, you know, particularly, or other politicians have only ever... Ever having experience working in kind of the journal in the yes. kind of MP bubble and coming up as being kind of policy advisors, and then being MPs and never having real world experience, yeah. so there is something to be said for that. But I do, I do think that this kind of stepping away um, does, you know, kind of now free him from any potential yeah. kind of conflicts of interest. No, because
4: there's, there's no way that you can write impartially when you're entirely partisan.
3: Yeah, how can you be part of the governing? party and sit in parliament and then go back to your other job and criticise them. I mean, there is a clear conflict there. And, you know, part of the media's job is to hold the government to account. So Mm. he's in the strange position of having to hold himself to account. And how how does that work?
2: Well, under his current current role, I'm sure he was arguing that no one else was holding him to account at the moment. And that does kind of turn us slightly to the other kind of last point that we'll kind of touch on here around the election. But obviously the way in which the media are now treating Jeremy Corbyn does seem to kind of have a slight kind of vitriol to it, a kind of slightly biting tone. And in some of this, particularly the BBC has been kind of criticising its kind of supposed bias, not only to the kind of coverage around Brexit, but also the kind of treatment that they've kind of given Jeremy Corbyn this week uh, this is uh, being reported from the independent um yeah you know, kind of around uh, Nick Robinson a couple of weeks back now defending a little bit around this of the way in which the today program in particular has handled the the discussion around brexit and now obviously with the election um the the kind of treatment that corbyn has been getting do you think corbyn's been getting kind of unnecessary rough ride or yeah you know, is it a kind of a fair critique
3: i i'm hesitating because it's a little bit of both and i think yeah of course the media at times have had it in for Corbyn, but they've had it in for other politicians as well. And We just mentioned Tim Farron, for example. There's a classic example. And I I do think a lot of the time, Jeremy Corbyn, he brings it on himself. There's been a lot said recently. I don't know if you've seen the news around Labour's media team and how apparently journalists have been going to the Labour Party for, for comment and waiting hours and even days to get any kind of reaction back from his press team. Um, and so you know if you're not willing to deal with the media and have a really good press team to work with journalists then you can't expect the best coverage in fact you can't expect much coverage at all can you if we're what, hanging around waiting hours for a quote then you're not going to make the print deadline
2: but i think yeah, if you look at it kind of the flip side there is maybe something about that around and you know we've talked in kind of on the show previously around this kind of speed element of always kind of having to be reactionary and you know maybe there is some uh, you know i kind of have a little bit of kind of sympathy for them on that side of like actually not rising to every challenge of every question that gets asked and being what, you know kind of willing to make a kind of more considered opinion. You know, I think you guys obviously kind of have to kind of dive into making stories all the time with these types of folks, you know, whether they're from the politics or the world of media entertainment and you know, often putting people on the spot with that question. Do you think that that maybe is something that we should see more of actually? That more, you know, that some of these press teams shouldn't be rising to kind of the, the breaking news 24 hour ticker cycle and actually taking their time to answer these questions. Well, I
4: guess as well there's that balance between being reactive and proactive, isn't there? And when you're reactive, you're constantly reacting to what other people want you to answer and and other people's agendas. Whereas if, um, I'm not saying that this is necessarily the case in politics, but but sometimes if you sit tight a little bit, do a little bit of reactive stuff, but actually kind of set out your agenda, what is the message I want to get, be a bit more proactive in what you do, then actually you could potentially get a more positive Message out there, which is helping your agenda. Um, I'm not saying that's what he has been doing, but um, I guess a good media team will do will know how to do both well. Yeah,
3: exactly. a good A good media team would understand the PR element here. Of sometimes it is better to say to say nothing. Mm. Uh, I mean, from my point of view, being part of a monthly magazine, it's nicer actually to have a little bit of a mm. slower pace with mm. some of these stories. Hopefully, we can take a bit more of an in depth look. And it's very interesting. All the all the research I'm showing, I'm seeing. Sorry, is showing that people are not willing to pay for news because mm. we get free news all the time but they are willing to pay for analysis. And Mm -hmm. I think that's where Um, the media have to focus their attention. I mean, you look at some of the positive figures that The Times newspaper have been seeing with their circulation and and the way they market all of their online stuff. Often it's come to us for the analysis, Mm. come to us for the commentary, and that's what people are willing to pay for. And I think that's what we're trying to do as a monthly magazine is, okay, you've heard all the news on the Mm. 24-hour cycle, but let's take a little bit of a longer run up to it, a bit more of an in-depth look. And I I think that's the way forward a lot. Because
4: actually, in some senses, they're kind of the questions that are in the um, atmosphere (coughs) and in the ether and everything. Because, you know... it obviously was incredibly surprising to have the snap election and people were kind of like okay well that's happened but the real question was why is it happening Mm. why they're doing it now and actually that was the question that people weren't answering straight away yes Um, and that was certainly the question that lots of my friends were asking was kind of why now why this Like why she done it all of that so I think you're right I think analysis is a really important element but but also someone can who can kind of lay that out simply with all the all the size and quite a measured response with lots of different reaction
2: okay well as we're on the kind of topic of unity and And this whole idea of whether or not we can kind of come together around different subjects it leaves me to introduce you now to our uh, feature interview for this episode Um, this month I caught up with Steve Clifford who is the head of the Evangelical Alliance and um, has been there for over 20 years leading the organisation. We discussed how his uh, new book which is focusing on the topic of unity can speak into our current times where we are ever more divided both within uh, the the church and also as a country so I'd like to introduce Steve Clifford So, Steve, let's start talking about your new book, One, Unity and Diversity. What was the impetus for writing the book in the first place?
5: Well, I suppose, James, uh, I, I came back from holiday last year with an absolute conviction. Now, I don't often say this, but a conviction that God was asking me to write on this particular theme and uh, I, 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 the reason I, I wrote on it is that I'm just convinced at this moment of time this is pretty high on God's agenda for us as a Christian community across the UK. Actually I think it's across the world.
2: And you talk in the book and this is particularly interesting for our listeners around the often the, the negative way that Christians have been portrayed in the press and certainly in, in recent times what do you think are some of the root causes of that negativity? Where is that coming from?
5: Well, I think there is particularly in the West a prevailing narrative which is shaping how um, how the world is perceived and particularly dominant in the kind of media context and it is it is a what we would call a secular humanist agenda, and so that prevailing story is shaping so much of how um, how media is engaging with those of faith, of the Christian community, but of other faiths as well. And so that is, that is shaping so much of the stories that are being told, the challenges that are being brought to the church, and I think we are, particularly as I think a Christian community, we're having to learn in a new way um, how it is to live on the other side of social orthodoxy. We've lived on the right side of social orthodoxies for centuries, we're now living in, in a sense on the wrong side of social orthodoxy and that brings all kinds of challenges for the Christian community to, to, to see things as they, as they really are, are through spiritual eyes and not simply see it through the narrative that is presented to us by, by the media.
2: Do you think that that kind of media saturation, that slight addiction to kind of current affairs and, and editorializing is something that seems to have taken our eyes off of? Our kind of spiritual context stopped us as you say seeing things with that kind of spiritual lens what what's stopping us getting that clarity
5: well I think when if you're coming at the world and view the world with a presupposition which is there isn't a God and all this is a result of enormous cosmic accident it takes you along a pathway of interpreting the world through that filter system. Now the Christian community, and not just the Christian community, uh, the, the kind of, those of other faiths actually as well, we view it from another place that actually there really is a God and that He's the Creator God and all that's taking place in the context of our world is in the light of there being a God, a creator. And in the Christian worldview, God who is working his purposes out towards an end, which is a new heaven and a new earth. And God's not hu- uh, abandoned humanity. He is outworking his purposes in the world. And so that, that, that fundamental difference as to how we view the world, is a, it, it shapes the dialogue that takes place in so many different settings, but particularly in the context of, of the media.
2: One phenomena that I think we've all experienced is the power of confirmation bias and getting caught in our own filter bubbles. Do you think, as the church, we can also suffer from that? And how do we ensure that we hear a diverse ranges of opinion from across the Christian spectrum to make sure that we're open to a full understanding of what God might be trying to do?
5: Oh, I think that's a challenge for all of us, isn't it? I think we've got to be prepared to—we've got to be prepared to listen. We've got to be prepared to get out and about. Um, I live as I—I'm. I,
0: I, Introducing Wondersweet from Bluehost.com.
5: Someone who lives in London, there is a very big London metropolitan bubble that shapes so much of how, if you live in the capital, you perceive the country, um, you perceive the world. Um, and, uh, you know, j- just the other week I, I-, I had a-, a week that became available and I just said to my PA, I've got to get out of London, I've got to get into into some of these northern cities, I've got to be kind of engaging with people in another context other than the, uh, other than the London context. And I think it's an extraordinary challenge for us, those of us who do live in London, uh, to-, to see things clearly. I think, you know, the kind of what happened with Brexit um, the Brexit, the referend, the vote around uh, our involvement in the EU, is a great example of how w- London, and it's not just the media, but it's actually the kind of so much of the kind of power bases in in politics, failed to understand what was happening in so many other different parts of the UK.
2: Do you think the church failed to engage properly with that debate?
5: Um, I think actually the church did pretty well on it. I don't think the church actually. Um, th- th- our analysis is that, that the church didn't didn't vote one way or the other on it. I mean, they voted, but there wasn't a, partic- a particular line that the, ch- the church took. Um, we at the Evangelical Alliance endeavoured to engage in the debate um, in such a way that we were we were encouraging people of faith from both sides of the debate to to give. A reasoned theological perspective as to why they would be voting either to leave or remain. And I think actually, in the main, the church did pretty well on it. Um, I've, I've not heard of, kind of great conflicts in the context of churches. I have heard of disagreements that have taken place um, on it, and different, pe- different churches going, you know different people in different churches voting in different ways. But I think we handled it pretty well. So I think it is important that we, uh, w- that we pray. I think it's important that we're, we're engaging with the debate um, as to what is, t- what is taking place. I think it's also important that we, we see bigger than whether we're in or whether, whether we're out. Uh, one of the things I've consistently said on this issue is we are not leaving Europe. We remain Europeans. Whether we're part of the EU or not, we still remain Europeans. Um, and it's important that we don't end up with an island mentality uh, that actually is, is, is not speaking well of our closest neighbours across, chal- uh, across the channel.
2: So to turn a little bit to um, the book that you've uh, written, uh, this, this new book, One, Unity and Diversity, obviously this uh, recounts not only this, this call to unity, but also a lot of stories of your own experience over the past 20 or so years, particularly in your time at the Evangelical Alliance. And I suppose during that time, the, the moniker of evangelical or evangelicalism has, to be blunt, suffered some reputational damage in the media, particularly in the United States. Do you think there's a reframing that needs to happen in the media and the church around what it means to be an evangelical today?
5: I, I, I actually... I think actually there's always been a challenge around that particular word, evangelical. It's interesting that way back in the 18th century when the the Whitfields and the Wesleys were doing their amazing stuff, um, they were looked down on by the populace. And one of the words that were used to describe them by way of insult was the word, the enthusiasts. (laughs) These were the enthusiasts. Well, I, kind of, I have to admit, I, I like that phrase. I like the thought that we're the enthusiasts, because evangelicals are the enthusiasts, they're the passionate ones. And interestingly, I, I've noticed in, in a number of different settings how that word evangelical is being used, not simply in a kind of religious sense, but actually to speak about people who are enthusiastic about what they're doing. I had a friend of mine uh, recently who'd finished a branding exercise of a large um, uh, West End company. At the end of the, uh, of the kind of final briefing, they sat down, had a, had a few drinks, and the executive director of the company said, you know, what we need now is we need the evangelists. And to get out and sell the brand, and of course, what he meant was he wanted people that were passionate about about the brand, who believed in what it was all about, and would get out there and gossip about it. And I, I think that's that's what we evangelicals are all about. We're we're people who believe in what in in, in what we're our, our faith. Uh, we've got a very high view of Scripture. We want people to come into relationship with Him. We have an act we're activists, and we see the cross. As vitally important a watershed in, in human history.
2: So it's 500 years on from the, the first Reformation uh, this year, and there's a growing debate around whether social media and digital culture, particularly, is spawning a second Reformation of sorts, which perhaps might bring with it further splits within the church. And certainly, if you look across the churches um, that we know and uh, are familiar with today, they are going through significant change. Looking forward, do you feel that there's momentum towards greater unity in the Church as a whole, and should we be hopeful for what's to come?
5: Oh, I'm, I'm really hopeful, James. I, uh, I know there is a narrative that you know, the Church is fragmenting and, and is dividing. I don't buy into that narrative at all, either at a national level um, or indeed at a local level. At a local level, there are some extraordinary unity movements that are happening in towns and cities all over the country. Where Christian leaders and I, and I say Christian leaders because it 's not just church leaders but it closed church leaders, are, are getting together, building relationships which usually involves eating together and praying together and, and out of those relationships are coming conversations about what's God's agenda for our town and for our cities and so much that's happening you know whether it's food banks on night shelters or you know kind of serving the, the, the kind of local council through through responding to the needs of fostering and, uh, and the care structures you know just so much is happening across churches. Churches collaborating together, working together rather than an individual church that is, that is doing it. And at a national level, I, I'm seeing organizations and churches collaborating an extraordinary way. I mean this, this um, through the uh, the rest of the spring, right through the autumn, right into the in, right through the, in the rest of the year, there's going to be what's called a 1721 initiative which will go from one festival to another, to conferences, to events, affirming, recognizing the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, but affirming our unity in Christ for the sake of the Gospel. And it's, it's the whole spectrum um, of, of, the, of the evangelical community. Uh, it starts at Spring Harvest, it'll work its way through the big church day Out, it'll be at Festival of Life at the big Excel Centre, and finally at FIEC Conference, uh, In November, and the full expression of conservative evangelicalism through card-carrying Pentecostals are all involving themselves in this, affirming our unity together. I think it's profoundly significant and encouraging.
2: Thanks there to Steve Clifford. And if you want to find out more about the Evangelical Alliance, then head over to their website, eauk.org. Now, then, other things that you should be heading off to we have the playlist and the things that you should be listening to, reading, and watching this month. And we've got a whole bunch of different stuff here, uh, spreading uh, a real nice variety, um, which I'm glad to say. And starting off with um, some music recommendations from um, both of these two um, uh, John Mayer fans. Uh, yes, in deep. come on now. Um,
4: I'm never R- gonna have anything other than music to recommend just soon. R-
2: Ruth has just uh, come back from uh, spending a few days in LA and kind of has got her kind of californication on and come back with um, this recommendation. So Ruth tell us a little bit about the most recent John Mayer album. So the
4: main reason I love it is because I sort of was listening to it in a um, convertible Mustang driving around such LA. show-off. Um, <laughs> <such a> show <laughs> in fairness, I certainly don't think it's the strongest album, but there's there's one or two standout tracks which actually weren't on the EPs that he released beforehand. And the album is the for album our- is called um The, the Search, Search for. For everything. for everything. Search yeah. for everything. It's he's searching for Jesus really, ultimately. <laughs>
6: yeah,
3: I think he is. You listen to some of his previous comments where he says I've tried it all, you know, I've tried love, I've tried buying a load of stuff and, mm. and he says he says, I know it sounds corny, but there's only one more thing I'm looking for and that's love. That's yeah. you know, so yeah there's something there isn't there yeah, that's what we're all after there. guys yeah. if
2: you're after a uh, decent recommendation for some new music check out john mayer's new album also i believe he's playing in the next couple of weeks that you guys yes, are going to at we the will OT. be there at
3: the O2. i
2: sadly have not got tickets and i'm very jealous about it so if anyone wants to get in touch with those then well, i'd be much welcomed <laughs> um my recommendations this month i suppose we've been talking a lot in this uh, show about the upcoming elections um, and i think it's always helpful to kind of get a balanced view from a range of different mm-hmm. sources uh try and kind of get yourself out of your own media bubble so i've got a few few different recommendations here so i'm going to go quick fire on these but podcasts that are you know i'm a big fan of podcasts you're listening to a podcast so i hope that you're a fan of podcasts too um and if you've not already checked these ones out then i would have a few recommendations for you so first up is um commons people from the huffington post their um politics podcast um try and kind of give you a little bit of kind of a slightly different take on politics and, and a kind of nice ranging view so i would um check that out uh yeah it's called commons people uh from the huffington post and um has been really interesting they've Got a lot of kind of panel shows on there, some really deep dives into a number of different subjects, um, and is hosted by a variety of people from across the Huffington Post with a, a nice kind of balanced view of um, you know, different political pundits. The other show I would recommend as well, if you are kind of new to the world of politics and this, you know, if this is if you're listening to this and maybe it's your first time to vote or you know, you've not had many opportunities to vote before, I would really recommend Parliament Explained. It's actually a, po- a podcast published by the House of Parliament, not by the government not by any political party. And really interestingly is um, presented and hosted by Mira Sayal, the, the comedian. Um, and it's basically taking a look at the different kind of inner workings of uh, of, of Parliament. You know, they start off uh, talking about kind of the difference between Parliament and government, um, talking about kind of what happens in Parliament and how questions and debates work. It's a really, really interesting show
4: totally
2: um, to kind of get under the skin of it. And then one that we would uh, last two I'd also recommend is Coffee House Shots from the Spectator and also the New Statesman podcast Mm. give you a kind of nice balance. And if you haven't got time to go out and read um, a traditional print magazine every single week, then that's a great way of kind of getting a little bit of both the view from the kind of centre left and centre right um, there uh, across those two shows. So that's my recommendations for the month uh, on the podcast front. And hopefully you'll get your election fix in between our shows with that one. And uh, Sam, what do you have to kind of bring to the table? I believe that you went to see a, uh, a certain movie very recently. I did. I did.
3: I went to see The Shack, which, as you probably know, was a huge novel actually a decade ago now that wow. was wow. And uh, you probably remember that Christians loved it or hated it. And I tell you what, when it comes to the film, you're going to love it or you're going to hate it. <laughs> um, I was, I wasn't, you know, massively pro or against the book. I thought it's okay. And to be honest, I had similar th- feelings about the film. However. I, I I would say there are a couple of really, really impressive, emotional, moving moments in the Shack movie that really do get to the heart of what the gospel is about. I've got to balance that by saying there's a couple of moments where I think you are veering. I don't want to use the word heresy, but I'm going to have to. You know, you are veering in a very different direction, I would argue, to, to what would be mainstream Orthodox sort of biblical Christianity. So yeah I'd say go and have a look see what you think of the shack um, <laughs> is
4: it worth taking non-christians to? because I guess that for me would be
3: yeah and well, it's, the, the whole the of the the whole of the shack both the book and the film deal with that question of where is God when we're suffering what about the problem of evil and so that arguably is one of the major questions mm. that our non-christian friends are, are asking and
2: particularly pertinent right now as well mm-hmm. speaking into a lot of what we've kind of yeah. seen in the world and yeah, yeah kind of yeah. recent you know, slew of terror yeah. attacks obviously in the t- intervening <laughs> time between we last spoke uh, to you all on the podcast yeah you know, kind of the events that's happened in Westminster and again this week in Paris uh, mm-hmm. around the election uh, sorry yeah the shootings of the mm-hmm. the policemen around the elections there does seem to be a kind of a crying out I suppose in kind of pop culture for an answer to that question yeah, I yeah. mean it's a one that's kind of echoed down the ages of what mm-hmm. where is God yeah. during suffering
3: yeah and I think the film offers some partial responses much like the book did really again you may find the answer particularly convincing you may not it's such a it's such a marmite book and a marmite film mm-hmm. um, but it's out in cinemas from June 9th I believe in the UK it's already been in America's you you can read loads of reviews online as well from, from other Christians see what they think. Including
2: Sam's that didn't give it the best star rating. I didn't give it the best after. star rating christians You gave it a 2 out of 5 I gave five, it a 2 out of
3: 5. I, I could have maybe given it a 3 out of 5. Um, but you know go and make your own mind up. It's I tell you if nothing else it will provoke some really interesting conversations. I think whether you go with Christians mm. or not um, hopefully if you can get past some of the cheesy cringy American production and actually get to the heart of what's being discussed in the film there's loads to talk about.
2: Okay, well, that's uh, another one for you to add to your playlist this month. And if you've got any other thoughts and recommendations, you can let us know about those as well on Twitter. Uh, Just send us a tweet to at the MediaNet and use the hashtag Signal so that you're talking about the podcast. And you can also get in touch with us on Facebook as well, and we would love to hear from you. And on the topic of getting in touch with us, now is the time for you to kind of do that as we are approaching this October's MediaNet conference. Uh, These guys will be there. Woohoo! And I will be there, and we'll also be... uh, Taping a number of them. well, I mean, yeah, you can be ad- <laughs> you can be excited about that as well. Thanks, Ab. um, so you can see me between now and October if you wish to. I'm very accessible, but if you if you find that my diary is too difficult, then you will find me at the conference. Um, the Media Net hosts an annual conference for those working in uh, journalism and faith. And if you want to kind of come and join us, then there's a really great opportunity for you to do that right now because there is an early bird special on tickets. Um, they are just 50 pounds at the moment, that's 50 pounds, and you can get those from the MediaNet website. Just go to themedianet.org and click on conference and you can go and uh, get your tickets sorted out there. So go and check out the early bird rate while they're still available for the next couple of weeks. And we are really excited. The conference has got a number of awesome speakers. This year's uh, past conference in in 2016 was really fantastic opportunity to kind of get under the skin of some of these topics that we're discussing on the show. And you could even find yourself in the audience of perhaps a live taping of an episode there at the conference as well so uh, come along and join us there Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Signal. And we're going to wrap up this month with a new feature that we call Below the Fold, which is a little reflection for you. This is from Hazel Southam, and we'll close out this month's episode with her um, her prayer for journalists. And we just want to thank you for joining us. If you've got any thoughts and you've got any reflections, then please do get in touch again. You can find us at The Media Net on Twitter. And you can also reach uh, Sam on Twitter by finding him at... Sam Hales. And you can find Ruth.
4: At Ruth J. Jackson.
2: She had to think about that. And you can find me at James Poulter. We'll be back next month and in between with some extra election bite-sized pieces as we head towards the UK going to the polls on the 8th of June. But we'll leave you this episode with Hazel Southam for Below the Fold.
6: Let's face it being a journalist has never been a reputable trade in the eyes of many people you can forget the important roles of holding powerful people to account, standing up for the weak and marginalised and as my dad would have said, looking under beds for bones for many people, journalists are simply down there with biblical tax collectors and prostitutes and Donald Trump really hasn't helped that at all Having a world leader who tweets, media knowingly doesn't tell the truth, changes the narrative. You'd think that no one in their right mind would believe him, but people do. And add to this, tragically, 115 journalists were killed last year whilst doing their job. Three quarters of those were targeted and killed specifically because they were journalists, according to the organisation Reporters Without Borders. Whoever killed them wanted them dead to stop them telling people like you and me the stories that they had uncovered. So this year, more than ever, journalists need your prayers on the National Day of Prayer for the Media. I've been a journalist for about 30 years and, very occasionally, churches have prayed for me. It's been such a rare thing that it's invariably reduced me to tears when it happens. Curiously, however, in my experience anyway, churches are always appealing to God to raise up young people into the media. Honestly, if I had a fiver for every time I've heard that said from the front of the church, I'd be able to retire next week. (laughs) The truth is that we're already here. Journalists are serving your local community at your nearest BBC radio and TV stations and on your local newspaper. At a national and international level, we all benefit from the hard work and dedication of reporters, editors, photographers, as well as TV and radio crews. I'm lucky enough to travel abroad a lot for my work, and that's shown me just how fortunate we are in the UK to have both a free press and the BBC. I've been to enough countries where the news is, how shall we say, filtered crushed might be a better word or controlled to know that we are very lucky indeed having a free press means that you won't like everything that you read, hear or see but you wouldn't expect that would you? and we all have choices there are off buttons one of those choices is to support our media by watching, reading and listening to it praying about the things that we hear and yes, encouraging journalists too so on May the 28th, please spare five minutes in your church service to pray for hacks like me. We really would appreciate it. And in the new Trump era, we really need it.
2: Thanks again for joining us on this episode of Signal. And don't forget about the conference. If you want to get in on that early bird rates, then you can do that by just heading over to the MediaNet website, themedianet.org. And if you want to get in touch with the show, you can always do that on Twitter and on Facebook. You can find us at The Media on Twitter, or go ahead and leave us a comment on the Facebook page. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, you can do us a favour too. It would be awesome if you could go onto iTunes or SoundCloud and give us a star rating and leave a review. It really helps the podcast get to more people, and we would love your feedback. Thanks again for joining us on Signal and we'll see you again next month where we'll go under the skin of the media, faith and journalism in the UK and beyond. I'm James Poulter.